<laughs> it really is good to see you here. So hello, you. That's my favorite line from an old movie, the one about uh, Julia Childs. You guys remember that? Hello, you. That feels so personal. Hello, you. Those of you who are out of town and those of you who are in town. Look at you hanging in there. The whole world has changed on you multiple times in the last year and a half. And look at you hanging in there. I just want to acknowledge we're still standing and we're still here. And that's nothing to shake a stick at. You're here. You're staying tuned. You're pulling in close to things that you need during tough times. You figured out how to do that. We've all figured out how to do that. And the world is full of options. And you don't need me to remind you that you could be doing anything right now, including watching Formula One or the Olympics or getting ready for the big soccer match tonight. If you don't know what that is, ask any one of my children. But what an eccentric and unique and wonderfully alive and fast-changing and always adapting and constantly reconfiguring and ever-deepening group of people ANC is becoming. And I know you're not here because anyone is shaming you into showing up. I know that's the case. We've undone that nasty little algorithm a long time ago. We left those churches many, many years ago. That's not why we're here. Shame doesn't drive us anymore. Obligation isn't in the driver's seat of your life. I know that. No, you're way too smart and too honest for that, right? If I had to guess, and if you were to ask me, then why are we still making the effort? Why are we still doing this thing? I'd say you're probably here because you consistently, week in, week out, find something that sets you free, something that feels real, something that reminds you of home. There's something in this little building, in this little broadcast that we do, all goofy and simple as we do it, that summons your deepest self, your deepest truth to the surface ever so gently over time, week in, week out. That's probably why you're here. I'm guessing that's why you're watching if you're an out-of-towner who I just spoke to or who Stan spoke to this morning. I'm guessing that's why you're here or why you actually did the work to get here to drive across town and be in this building with us instead of doing something far more entertaining. I'm guessing that's what makes all this tick still. It's the interesting little bit that I mentioned about finding freedom, about getting set free, if you must know, that keeps the shine on the apple for me in this little space. The shine has not yet left this for me. I'm still very intrigued by this, and it's the getting free part that interests me most, which, of course, that's what we're doing in this little house. We're trying to strip away everything else that doesn't set people free. That's the whole sauce right there. That's the whole deal. That's simple barbecue, y'all. That's just a lot of time and salt and pepper right there. Easy stuff. No smoke and mirrors, just this. Let's strip away everything that doesn't set people free, and then what do we end up with? That's what drives us. That's what drives me at any rate. I guess you get to speak for yourself, I suppose. In the post-Elise world, I won't speak for you. You speak for yourself. But I'm guessing it's something to do with that that keeps you in this game. Getting free is why I'm still here, in case you wondered. It's why my family is still involved in this. The mystery of this gospel still takes my breath away if I can sit with it long enough throughout the week. It's the unmeasurability, which is not a word, but this is Texas. It's the impossibility of measuring its universal accessibility to all. It takes my breath away. And I'm only now finding it in my life. It was not preached to me as a young lad. I'm just now finding it. It's the goodness of the gospel that still feels bigger than I can get my head around. It may yet fit in my heart, time will tell, but my head is way too small to contain its fullness. It still feels elusive and expansive and far too wide for headspace. And that's a little warning for the thinkers in the room. We might not get there thinking our way into a gospel this big. 
But even still, and this might be the best news of all, our bodies know the gospel to be what we've always dreamed that it could be. This dream feels right. Even after all these years, you see God and us, God and we, we have a same dream. It makes us one, and that is to see all things free. I know the same is true for you. I hear from you periodically. And that's why probably you still pull this in and make the effort to listen. There's so many things you could pull in, but you're here. You have an entire world at your fingertips, and yet you're here. So look at you. I see you making that effort. Your body shares the same ancient history that mine does, that all of ours do, that same deep, deep future, that same ancient, ancient past. We all shared this. To be more precise, Paul will argue, as we will turn to in just a minute, that this is the inheritance of all people, no exceptions. And we could stop there. That's the whole gospel in a single, couple, in a single idea in just a few words. But I'm too excited to get us back to the world of Paul and his thoughts and his concerns for the young church at Ephesus to just stop here and say, let's have some more songs and let's go out into the world. You see, I'm falling back in love with Paul, this ancient man. I had fallen thoroughly out of love with him for many years, for multiple decades, but I'm falling back in love with his ideas. I should clarify, I'm falling in love with certain parts of Paul. And if you're a Bible scholar, listen to me closely. I'm going to give you a few things for free here. There are certain parts of Paul that I'm falling in love with, parts of his writings where he, he goes on to describe, you know, the things that we've been talking about recently, these ideas that are bigger than can be described. I'm over all the stuff that its interpretation sort of feeds patriarchy and sexism and classism. I'm, I'm over those limited reads of Paul that come through other people, and I'm done with the readings that make us feel anxious or uneasy or turning us into religious hustlers, but I'm noticing for the first time, perhaps, and that might be a little embarrassing to admit, the parts of these ancient letters that Paul wrote that describe the indescribable, where he attempts to attach words to this mysterious good news that loosens and sets all things free. I'm especially beginning to notice inside the text where he prays for us that we might somehow against all odds, despite all of our particularities and our limitations, that somehow we might yet discover the strength to know what is unknowable. It's a big idea. He locates appropriately, as we looked at recently, the center of this knowing in our inner being. Somehow, the roots of such a profound revelation, they go inside those roots, which is such a helpful reminder to me as I do the work of midlife in my late 40s. The only place we can carry such deep awareness, friends, such intense revelation, such timeless contextuality, such enormous ideas about this brave new world as initiated in Christ, the only place we can carry it that's big enough is in our inner world. Ironically, nothing on the outside is big enough anymore. Now you might say, well, I'm pretty sure you haven't been to the Grand Canyon, you haven't traveled the world, you haven't crossed the continents. L listen to me. Nothing on the outside is big enough to contain what Paul is describing. There are no external spaces large enough anymore. This only fits inside. Anyway, all this Paul stuff is finding a new home in me. Perhaps the same is true for you. If so, sound off. Let me know you're connecting to this. It would be really interesting to know because you know how reluctant I am, if you've been with me for a while, to dig into the particularities of these letters. If it's connecting with you, let me know. You know how to find me on the website there. Anyway, let's get to work for today, looking at the passage that the lectionary assigns us. And it comes to us from chapter 4 of Ephesians, and it's relatively brief. And it reads this way. It'll be on your screen. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humanity and humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, Paul writes. And we're going to stop there. So at first glance, these first six verses of chapter 4 are precisely the kind of passages in Paul that I find irksome. It feels to me at first read that he's saying you're going to need to work really, really hard to become worthy, to measure up, you know, to earn your way into all this goodness that he just got through describing. It feels a little disjointed. It feels like an abrupt gear shift from where we've just been in chapters 1 through 3. Perhaps a closer look might reveal something different, but also maybe not. Maybe this is an abrupt gear shift. And so before we take this section one verse at a time and see what we might distill out of it for meaning, I want to put this idea on the table. And Bible scholars, think about this and maintain this in in, in your awareness. Paul gets to switch voices if he wants to in the middle of a passage. Remember, we're not in his view when he writes. He's writing to a group of people who understood the context. He gets to switch voices if if he wants to. In fact, it wouldn't be all that surprising if he did. After all, Paul is not simply describing something already airtight, something already fully revealed, something already completely understood. No, no, Paul is innovating, and there's a difference. And it matters that we acknowledge that. Paul played a very complicated role in the early church. You see, his life work turned out to be starting, initiating, and then serving and maintaining these little communities of followers of Jesus all throughout the Greco-Roman world. We call them churches. They probably didn't call themselves that, but that was his work to get these things started and then to maintain them. He was first a missionary and a practitioner who started little tiny churches, a practical man leading communities that had practical questions. How should we live in the world? That's what he was, first of all. Secondarily, he was a public theologian who applied the teachings of Jesus to non-Jewish cultural contexts. And he did that by tinkering with existing meaning and symbols. Now hear this. He did that by taking things that people thought they understood and he tinkered with them and he massaged them. His was the work of reinterpreting old ideas in brand new ways. Which means he tried a lot of things on. He practiced ideas and he traced them out to their logical conclusions. He took new turns. Sometimes he took U-turns. Oftentimes he took turns down dead-end roads and he'd have to back that up later. What am I saying? Paul tried on different voices and different perspectives in his letters. He was working stuff out as he went. This was a lot to get one's head around, it turns out, which is why he sometimes would switch an angle, sometimes several times. Look at the book of Romans, right in the middle of a single passage, which is to acknowledge he hadn't perfectly figured all these things out yet. I hope that is no big revelation to you at this point. Think about this. How does one take something particular and make it general. Philosophers in the room, tune this in. How does one go from granular to macro? How do you go from micro to macro? How do you take a particular man and tease out of the interpretation of that life something general for all? It's not easy work. Even harder, how does one interpret something ancient? Now think of the laws and the prophets that the Jews preserved and the history of Israel. How do you take something ancient Pull it through the lens of something current. Now think of the first century Greco-Roman world and all of that culture in such a way that makes a man, a single man named Jesus, a man who was otherwise just a human being, how do you do that in a way that makes of his life something universal? 
How do you do all that work with the past, pulling meaning through the filter of a single someone, a single human, until that man represents all things? Can you feel the weight of the task that Paul is trying to accomplish? Not easy stuff. If you were working with such big ideas, this, these big, disruptive, potentially revolutionary ideas, they'd turn up in the letters you wrote to your friends too. And it would probably take you some time to figure them out as well. Of course you'd tinker and massage until you get them right, just like Paul did. And just to be crystal clear, of course this would evolve over years, meaning the later things you wrote probably would be more integrated than the early things. What am I describing? I'm describing how we approach the letters of Paul. It all makes sense to me. What feels weird is that somehow the rest of history moving forward after he wrote would read and quarry and distill these pieces of personal correspondence in such a way that assumes universal norms and rigid ideologies from what he was trying to figure out. Paul's work was daunting. It sounds like it because it was. And we are wise to acknowledge this. And I would argue that we lose something important when in late 19th century America we allow strange and limiting ideas like biblical inerrancy to come along and respond to the rise in science, a defensive rise to, to the revelation of science, claiming that every single word in Paul to those little bands of practitioners around the Greco-Roman world were somehow infallible. That's a very late and very new idea. Do your work on that. It's a very strange thing to apply to ancient correspondence. It just is. Not even Paul, who was given to some hyperbole from time to time, describes his work as this big. He doesn't even describe it as this universal, this concrete, this brittle, or this freighted with the weight of the nation's understandings. He would not have understood that. The interpretive work of application that Paul was doing would require a very, very wide lane for him, right? And a lot of permission and a lot of liberty with ancient texts, the same texts that many of his contemporaries thought they fully understood. So he's doing some tricky work. Okay? Why am I saying all this? And just to close the loop for us today, we're doing the same basic thing. Now, when Paul wrote, the ancient text would have been the Old Testament. As we sit in history, some of the ancient writings is Paul. We're pulling from 20 centuries ago. And there's an art and a science to this. There is some trial and error, and there is room enough for experiment and hypotheses and theories to be tried on and to be set aside. So when Paul switches voices abruptly in the middle of a text like he does here in chapter 4, it doesn't necessarily imply contradiction. It might just speak to the tension and the difficulty of doing public theology. That's all of our work. And doing it in a world that's trying to understand old texts in the light of new revelations and new awareness. What am I saying? That's exactly what we're trying to do today. Do you see the connection? It's no different. Paul was doing the work that we're doing. Our work is no different than his. And finding new meanings from ancient revelation by pulling old ideas through new consciousness, this is what all faithful people have always done since time immemorial. That does not make us heretics. That makes us curious and engaged. So that's a little something to keep in mind. We are in search of our own comfort and guidance as the world changes. And the way that we do this is to look backwards and forwards, to look to ancient and contemporary things, to both preserve and innovate. We're always in the tension between those two things. It's always been the only way. So let's look at these verses and see what we might get from these. Verse 1, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so here attention to words is going to matter. Because of the ancient mystery revealed to me, as Paul is saying, this is my paraphrase, because of this one new humanity glimpsed in Christ but also available to all that he will call the fullness of God, 
Because of all this, therefore, Paul says, because of this, for this reason, I urge you to lead a life that sees itself as fitting, worthy of the invitation or the calling, okay, that you have received. You've been included. Therefore, whatever you do, don't go back to feeling like you're on the outside, says Paul. That's the summary of everything Paul says. Don't go back to what? To thinking in ways that divide us. Basic logic tells us there must have been someone whispering in the ear of these faithful people gathered that they didn't actually belong. And so Paul writes to say, don't go back. There is one humanity in Christ. It's probably why Paul wrote to remind them that who they were and how they fit into the tapestry of God's plan. Their status wasn't up for grabs. Listen to me. Your status is not up for grabs. It actually never has been. I know you've suffered in the church. We all drag around the wounds of institutional faith. But your status in the eyes of God, has never actually been in question. That undoes so many years. Living into this reality, though, would turn out to be quite tricky. In fact, church history will prove to us that it's virtually impossible to hang on to it for very long. At any rate, this business about living a life that is worthy isn't about faithful followers of Jesus at Ephesus needing to prove anything. That's kind of a a word conundrum there. This isn't about them having to perform or to earn this new status within the one new humanity. This isn't about deserving anything when he says, I hope that you are worthy of the calling. We have to dig a little deeper. This is a homecoming that we're talking about, not new rules about who's in and who's out of a newly reconfigured institutional religious tribe. Now, tragically, that's what it would become in so many ways, but that's not what this was about. This is about coming home all the way home and then learning to stay there at home within this one new humanity once we find our way. After all, Paul will say it a dozen ways before he's done. We all have the same father. We are all siblings now, which is why he goes on to say in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What's he describing? A homecoming. Like this, it's going to require us to show humility and gentleness and lots of patience. And what does that look like? What will it actually look like in practical terms? Like a lot of people sharing the loads that a lot of people carry. Like us being implicated in the bearing of one another's loads. Loads that we all carry. And if we're not careful, we'll carry those loads alone. And Paul describes a world in which that's no longer possible. This work will look like helping one another, lifting that heavy burden that we each bear. Suffering alone does not seem to be an option in this one new humanity that Paul speaks of. Why do we focus on the poor? Why do we serve our city? Why does it matter to us what happens to those of us who are struggling the most? Because we're all one new humanity. It's just a read of scripture. It's an understanding of who we are. And it's just another way of describing what it looks like to live and act with love. There's no other kind of love than that which can be seen, which that is felt and tangible. There is no other kind of love than that which shows up to shoulder the the burden of another Love is what we call this. And there's more in verse 3. Paul writes, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. (laughs) Notice here the word maintain. You see, we didn't establish this unity. We didn't accomplish this peace. This is love's doing. This is God's handiwork. God's dream is what you might call this. We didn't create this. Oh, but it's going to be our work to maintain it, isn't it? Maintenance will be our work. So Paul encourages the Ephesians, or us by extension, to do whatever they or we are able to do in order to hold this new center. He begs them, or us, to stop at nothing on the way. He implores them, or us, to leave nothing on the table when attempting to figure out how to stay in unity of spirit and to live in peace. He must have known how hard this would be. Of course he did. And peace, by the way, we will take 
we, we will take a bond. It, it's going to take a bond to work properly. And that's the word he uses here. He uses the word that can also be translated as the ligaments, right? So think about the material that attaches two things. That's the kind of word he's using when he talks about peace. A bond is, is what ties two things together. It's think about muscle and bone or I don't know, Republican and Democrat, or I don't know, vaxxed and non-vaxxed. I don't know, emerging world and first world. You, you name it, male, female, slave, free, rich, poor. It's a bond that he describes it's going to require to hold that peace. So reading this in context and flow, what is he saying? Paul is encouraging his readers to stay in the work of unity and peace long enough to see it come to life because it's going to take work. Nothing indicates that this will be easy work. As I said last week, Paul intuits that this is going to be hard. And he seems to see around the bend, knowing that the world around them will tempt them to go back to old narratives, to old rules around tribal allegiance, right? To go back to seeing that the love of God is a limited, scarce resource only available to us and those who like us. But they must resist. They must maintain the gift that they have been given. And peace between opposing forces is what every heart craves. And it's going to be hard work. Maybe, maybe it's the only actual work we have left yet to do. Peace, has been often said, is not the absence of conflict, but the result of hard work done together by two parties that are otherwise divided to focus on what makes them one. Ligament, glue, bond. He goes on. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Hang on with me. This is some big stuff here. Again, we don't read these ideas of, uh, around obligation or vocation into Paul's use of the word calling here. I think that word falls short. He, this word calling, it carries the idea more of an invitation. And so he's asking them to never go back on the thinking that understands this to be their, their invitation, something available to those who figure out ways to hold it and to maintain it. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, but mostly one father, one progenitor. One source or spring from which all things emerge and take on their dynamic life and form. And just in case we are tempted to project unacceptably small versions upon this word fatherhood, the word, the concept father here that Paul is using says that this father, this source, this one is above all and through all and in all. Above all, I get that. That's fair enough. This would be a universal claim by all people of all faith systems, both ancient and modern. Of course, they would go on to say that their divinity or their source is above all. That's just to say that it's superior. That's not all that interesting to me. That's pretty standard fare to say God is above all. But to say through all, that starts to push into some new domains. If you think about it, through all, I'm sort of half intrigued and okay with the word through until Paul unites it to the word all, which leaves nothing out. You mean, Paul, we don't have to qualify what things God can function through anymore? There's no limitation to put on that? We don't have to limit that in any way? Oh, I wonder. Let that sink in. No exclusions? Through all? This applies, of course, through every single component part, ruling nothing out. God is Father through every single thing. That feels new which might allow us to say in the rearview mirror as time sort of helps us evaluate where we have come from, at the end of all things, God was there, which is interesting. It's an interesting takeaway. Maybe it's a way of looking at the silver lining, but then Paul adds this little clause when he says this. 
in all in verse 6. Just to remind you, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Did you catch that little idea? In all? This Father that we share, this progenitor of one new humanity is somehow in all, and that word can be in or on or by or with or among. God is somehow Father in, in the middle of, among all people, while they still are lost and unrepentant. Could this be? God is somehow Father in or from the middle, in the midst of all places, while those places are still undiscovered and evolving. God is somehow Father in, from the middle, or with in all things, while those things are still unknown and unfolding. Could it possibly be? I can't think of anything that Paul leaves out here. He takes great pains to name it all. You see, God is all and all is God in the theology of Paul. Origin and end of all things is he. Source and future of all things is she. Beginning and eventual outcome of all things are they. Oh, can you get your heart around something that big? There are zero things or places or circumstances or people in which God isn't. Zero people, zero places, zero things. God is, friend, all and all is God. Could this possibly be true? If we say yes, then all things are sacred now. All things are God-infused. All things are filled to the brim with the divine and held together by love. How would we live if we actually believed this? Let me warn you, accepting the everywhereness, the in the midst of all thingsness, the complete infusion of God in the material world of all people, places, and things will change everything about how we move and live and breathe and exist. How would this impact our sense of purpose, our sense of calling? Oh, what an interesting question. Paul describes this calling or this invitation as something that the Ephesians, or we by extension, should take seriously. And what is it? Well, you could call it the nothing outside the life of God consciousness. It's that simple. So then, dear one, what is your calling? Simply put, to live this way, to live as this were true. No, preacher, man, you, do, you, you go in weird directions now. You don't understand. My calling is to build or to write or to sing or to paint or to sculpt or to design or to teach or whatever. You fill in the blank. That's what my calling is. <laughs> True, your calling, my calling, our ancient yet ever-renewing human calling is to build and write and sing and paint and sculpt and design and teach as people who understand that all is God and God is all, you see. Paul, of course, later in chapter 4 and forward, will go on to discuss the particular gifts that God has given the church. He'll mention a few of them that are significant to the work he does. Think apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and pastors. They're interesting for sure, but I doubt that they're exhaustive or comprehensive, even for church leadership. None of that matters to me at this point. Besides, there's no church anymore, remember? There's no division of the world anymore. There are only people now. And there is only a wild and free world above which and through which and in which divine life courses endlessly, ever renewing. This final thought as we close. The root, Paul will say again and again, is love. It's the only thing strong enough to hold a a brand new world. And love is not about duty or obligation or loss and certainly doesn't require The loss of you and the finding of love. No, love begins with you finding you. It's not about loss or duty or shame or guilt. 
or institutions that put standards just out of reach of most of us. It's not about that. Love is about finding and rooting and growing. It's about homecoming. First on the inside. And then and only then to the wider world around us. What an interesting thinker Paul was. I wonder if you would join me on your feet if you're able. I pray that we might accept this truth today. Allison and I were having a conversation this morning around coffee, as we always do every morning, but including Sundays. And she asked how, how the sermon was going, and I said, I don't know about the application at the end. Does, it feels weird to me. And then I wondered, whose work is it to take the Word of God and apply it to your life? Pop quiz. Is that my work to do for you? That's what they taught me in preacher school. It's my work to apply this to you, so I've got to figure that out times 1,000, times 2,000, times I don't know. I wonder if in this new algorithm where you are you and I am me and we do this great work together as we gather, I wonder if there's not some increased agency around understanding the following truth. I can crack it open, but if you're going to make an application for your life, you're going to have to figure out how to do that. It's always going to be your work. How do I know that to be true? Because you and I can sit in the same room and hear the same words and there can be 32 different applications among 17 people. It's always going to be your work. Here's the thing. I actually trust you to do that. What are you going to do with an idea so big that Paul says it's unknowable? What are we going to do with a love so ancient, so based in the future, so rooted on the inside that it literally pulls hate and tribalism from us? What are we going to do with that? I don't know the answer to that for you. I could tell you for hours what I'm going to do with that, but that's me. In a world that assumes that I have to do that work for you, that I get to do that work for you, that that's my expectation feels undoable to me now. I can do this for me. I can bring a few people in on that from the outside, namely those who I live with and do life with, but you're going to have to grab this. Guys, what do you make of a love this big? What are you going to do this week? that models a deep understanding, a deep embodiment of a love that knows no bounds. You're going to have to figure out some new ways of being in the world, as am I. And so I want to pray for us right now that we might do that well, do that work, and know that that's, that is actually our work to do, that only we can do. So Lord, for your word that comes from ancient times added to what we know to be true, we give you thanks. It's not just the ancient words, and it's not just the the knowing in our gut today, it's the combination, it's the harmony of these things across time that says we are on the path to a deeper knowing of ourselves, which equals a deeper knowing of you. And so, Lord, that we might have the grace to do that well, that's my prayer today for me and for us, for my family, for this church, and for all of those who join us around the world. Let it be. In your name we pray.